Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientists with Kat Arney and Ben Valsler. Now, Ben, what have you got for us in the news this week? Well, sharks are well known for their ability to follow a scent in the water all the way to their next meal. And now researchers in Florida have discovered how it is that they do it. Writing in the journal Current Biology, Jane Gardner at the University of South Florida and Jill Atima at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute showed that sharks are able to detect very small delays in the scent reaching each nostril. And it's this, rather than the actual concentration of the chemical, that actually gives them their sense of direction. Now, most species that rely on scent are equipped with stereo sensors, so two antennae on an insect or two nostrils on your dog, for example. And it's long been assumed that this means species can home in on the source of a scent using concentration as a guide. So if the scent is stronger on the left than on the right, they would simply turn into the concentration gradient. Well, that sounds fairly sensible. It does, you'd think it makes sense. But in reality, concentration gradients are rarely, if ever, that simple. When dispersed in air or in water, chemicals are very unlikely to form a uniform gradient. Instead, they exist in whirls or vortices, and sometimes you get peaks of concentration quite a long way from the source. Now, this means that following a concentration gradient alone is quite likely to lead you in circles, which is not a very efficient way to find your food. And as we know, sharks are devastatingly efficient hunters. (laughs) So what have the researchers done to find this out? Well, working with the smooth dog shark, that's Mustelus canis, the researchers has introduced a scent to each nostril in very controlled concentrations and with very controlled time delays. They found that the timing of the pulses was most important, as the sharks would turn towards the first pulse, even if the second pulse was actually a much higher concentration. This actually seemed to break down when the delay was too large, so if it was over a second between reaching one nostril and then reaching the next, the shark was just as likely to turn either way. Now what this means in practice is that the sharks will actually weave from one side to the other following the average concentration gradient without really being waylaid by the local small concentration changes. Well, that's dog sharks, but what about (laughs) other types of sharks? Great whites, the scary (laughs) ones with teeth. Well, the researchers want to follow this up, and dog sharks are actually quite cute. Um, But they want to follow it up and see if things like a wider spaced nostril gives a shark greater accuracy and at higher speeds. The best example to think of is hammerhead sharks. They have these distinctive flattened heads that we call cephalofoils, and they have much greater separation between their nostrils. And even though their olfactory organs are just as sensitive as other sharks, they might be better able to detect these time differences, and so they might be able to hunt more efficiently at sharper angles and also at higher speeds. And the really nice thing about this finding is it has some other very interesting applications. It can be applied to underwater steering algorithms to allow unmanned robotic craft to very quickly locate the source of a chemical spill underwater, such as, for example, an oil leak, which of course is very important at the moment. Very topical. I do not want to be the scientist that has to do research on hammerhead sharks. Anyway, now we have a dilemma for you, Ben, the classic Homer Simpson dilemma. Is it more important to eat or to sleep? 
Now, if mammals are deprived of sleep, then they want to eat more to help them stay awake. And if you're deprived of food through starvation, this keeps you awake, presumably to search for more food. But we don't know a lot about how this is controlled, and obviously we need to strike the balance between enough sleep and enough food. Though you can combine them. Obviously, I, I once had a dream I was eating a giant marshmallow, and when I woke up, my pillow had gone. Boom. <laughs> anyway, now researchers in the US have uncovered some of the genes that control the balance between eating and sleeping, at least in fruit flies, and in turn, this might shed light on our own patterns of eating and sleeping. Okay, so what's the story here? What are they looking at? Well, this is work from Alex. Keen and his colleagues and they published it this week in the journal Current Biology and they've been looking at the sleeping and feeding cycles of these tiny fruit flies, Drosophila. Now these are quite a handy model organism for this kind of study because we know a lot about their daily rhythms, these circadian rhythms. Now the scientists discovered that starving fruit flies had a powerful effect on keeping them awake, the same as you'd see in mammals. And given that fruit flies share a lot of genes with humans and other mammals, this suggests that we can use them to unpick the genetic connections between sleeping and feeding using these little flies. Okay, there are lots of genetic techniques that people can use to study these sorts of things. What did this particular research use? Well, the scientists scanned through 2,000 genes in the flies and they found over a dozen of uh, suspects that were involved in sleeping and feeding and they narrowed their search down to just two that seemed to be really important. These are genes called clock and cycle. And we've heard of them before because they're also involved in flies' daily rhythms and they're involved in the daily rhythms in mammals, including humans. Now, to find out more about the role of these genes, they looked at flies both with and without each gene under starvation conditions to find out how much they slept. I don't think I've ever seen a fly that I could definitely say was asleep. How on earth do you tell? Uh, well, the researchers monitored the fly's movements. Now, if a fly isn't moving regularly, it's probably a good bet that it's asleep. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so what did they find? They've monitored their sleeping flies and their waking flies. What did they actually find? Well, the researchers discovered that flies missing the clock and the cycle genes had a three- to four-fold reduction in sleep when they were starved, compared with genetically normal flies. And this tells us that both the genes play an important role in helping the flies to sleep under starvation conditions and probably help to coordinate the choice between sleeping and eating at any given time. OK, and we know the clock and cycle genes uh, are also shared between us and the flies. So this is all well and good if you're a hungry or sleepy fruit fly. Still never seen a fly asleep. But could this research have any relevance to us? We're a very different species. Well, we do have these clock and cycle genes and they do have very similar roles. And it may be that these genes do help us to coordinate our eating and sleeping patterns too. So further research with mammalian models and human cells, it might shed light on how to treat things like sleep disorders and, and metabolic and eating problems but it's quite speculative at the moment and more work does need to be done well as always if anybody is doing research on sleep and would like to pay me to fall asleep they are more than <laughs> welcome I, I do like a nice nap thank you very much cat now collecting mosquito saliva in honey can help to track the pathogens that mosquitoes carry according to researchers in australia andrew van den herk at the university of queensland and his colleagues have published a report in the journal pnas detailing how mosquitoes can be coached into leaving saliva samples in honey-soaked cards. These cards can then be analysed to find any virus RNA present, giving you a precise guide to what viruses local mosquitoes are carrying without ever having to handle a mosquito. 
mosquito spit. Lovely. Um, <laughs> why would we be looking for pathogens in mosquito spit? Well, arthropod-borne viruses, or arboviruses for short, are a public health concern worldwide. They include things like dengue, yellow fever, West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis, lots of really quite troublesome viruses. Proper surveillance of these viruses is essential for disease control strategies such as timing vaccination correctly and mosquito control. But present mosquito-based survey techniques are, according to the paper, expensive and logistically problematic, which I think is a tactful way of putting it, and they involve the collection and transport of live mosquitoes. Other survey methods might involve disease diagnosis in infected patients, you have to wait until you have enough infected people to understand it, or monitoring of of sentinel animals to see what diseases they're carrying. Again, another scientific job I would not like, studying live mosquitoes. So what is so good about this technique then? Well, the honey trap method has several advantages. The honey soak cards themselves preserve viral RNA for at least seven days without needing to be refrigerated. And this is even when tested in both temperate conditions, which was at a site near Bunbury in Western Australia, and in much warmer, damper tropical conditions near the northern Queensland city of Cairns. The honey itself is also a very important part of the process as it remains moist throughout the collection period and that ensures that the mosquitoes have access to the liquid sugars that they find so attractive. Manuka honey, which is partly what they've been using, also has antibacterial properties which help to protect the viral RNA from bacterial RNAases, these enzymes that break down RNA. And this preserves the sample for long enough to be collected days later and analysed. But how do they know this technique's actually working? Is, is it good? Does it work? Well, it seems so, yes. In lab tests, by adding blue dye to the honey, the researchers could identify which mosquitoes had been feeding on the honey and then compare evidence of virus on the card to the traditional saliva samples taken from the mosquitoes. This showed the method to be of similar or better accuracy to the traditional, more time-consuming sampling methods. In fact, there were some virus particles that were transmitted even without the mosquitoes consuming any honey and this is because an infected mosquito just probing at a food source is actually enough to transmit a virus to a susceptible host. Now this particular report shows that this novel technique works well for Ross River virus, Barmer forest virus, chikungunya and West Nile virus but the authors suggest that it could be expanded to detect malaria or even used with other virus vector species so it's very very promising. The wonders of mosquito spit. Anyway, moving on. Cancer is a disease that starts when cells become immortal and multiply out of control. And over the years, researchers have discovered that a crucial part in the process for at least 8 out of 10 cancers is the switching on of telomerase. This is a protein that makes telomeres, the caps on the ends of our chromosomes. They're a bit like the plastic caps on the end of your shoelaces. Now, without telomerase, our telomeres get shorter and shorter. And eventually, when they get too short, the cell stops dividing. It's a bit like a molecular clock counting down the lifetime of our cells. But cancer cells switch telomerase back on, so they just keep on multiplying. And now new research from scientists in Cardiff, funded by the charities Cancer Research UK and Leukaemia and Lymphoma Research, have discovered that a certain type of leukaemia may actually develop as a result of telomerase not being active enough. So hold on, the usual problem is telomerase is too active. The problem here now is it's not active enough. I'm, I'm confused, what's actually going on here? 
Well, led by Duncan Baird, the scientists were studying samples from patients with chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, or CLL. This is a cancer that affects white blood cells, which multiply out of control. And writing in the journal Blood, the scientists used a new technique to precisely measure the lengths of telomeres in the cancer cells and compared them to telomere lengths in blood cells from people without the disease. And they found that telomerase appears to be underactive in the cancer cells in the early stages of the disease. So the telomeres actually get shorter and shorter. Now, at this point, you would expect the cells to stop dividing and to die, but they don't. So what's actually happening? What's going on? Well, instead, the ends of the chromosome start to stick together. This causes strange genetic alterations that further fuel the development of cancer. And then the researchers think that telomerase actually gets switched back on at this point, immortalising these genetically weird cells and fueling the growth of cancer. So this is a two-step process. At first, a lack of telomerase leads to some genetic faults. And then the telomerase is switched back on and these faulty cells, these mutants, then grow out of control. Exactly. And this is the first time that this process has been shown to happen in human cancer cells, so it's pretty important stuff. And what's more, the research could potentially lead to a blood test for monitoring how fast leukaemia is progressing by measuring telomere length, as well as helping doctors to decide on the best treatment or speeding up diagnosis. Now, this sounds really good. Anything that quickens diagnosis is a benefit to us. But do we think the same sort of thing is happening in any other cancers other than leukaemia? Well, that's what the scientists are trying to find out now. They're looking at telomere length in other types of tumours, such as bowel cancer. And at the moment, we don't have the results from this work. But if they find similar mechanisms at work, it could open up some really exciting new avenues of research. And that could lead to future cancer treatments or diagnostic techniques. Fantastic, that's very good news. Now, it's World Cup season again, so everywhere you look, there's football. I'm sure you've been following it, Kat. Yeah, I was wondering, was there some kind of sporting thing on? (laughs) I hadn't really noticed. Well, it's probably worth keeping an eye out for, but to be honest, you'll find it very hard to avoid. But there's actually some very interesting science going on behind the widening access to football in South Africa, as Mira Senthalingam found out. This week saw a historic moment in football the kick-off of the first World Cup ever to be held in an African nation. I spoke to Kelvin Kem from Pretoria in South Africa to find out what things are like over there and how science and technology is being used to make sure the games are as safe and accessible to as many people as possible in South Africa. Well, Mira, everybody's going World Cup mad here. On the large TV masts and the cell phone masts, there's huge soccer balls on the mast. Everybody's got soccer balls all over the place. On every placard you can imagine there's soccer pictures, all the teams are arriving day by day and every team is being met at the airport and waved down the street. So just everybody's riding around with flags out of the car windows and so you can't look anywhere now that there isn't soccer fever all over the place. And have there been any particular science or technological developments in relation to the World Cup, say to help people watch it or even for security reasons too? Oh, there's been some interesting things. For example, one company has taken a number of solar-powered television sets into far remote areas that are not electrified, so all the local villagers can come along and sit and watch the World Cup on, on TV. Also, something else is interesting about the security, as you mentioned. There's huge security coverage. For example, if a model aeroplane takes off a radio-controlled plane and aims towards the stadium, the military and security command centre can detect that model aeroplane and crash it if it goes on a path towards a soccer stadium. By radio jamming, they will jam the radio signal so the aircraft crashes. 
And uh, even base jumpers, every base jumper has got to be registered and can't jump within a certain radius of the stadium unless they get permission, which they won't get during a game. But large and small aircraft as well, every single aircraft from a small private aeroplane to the Boeing 747s has got to ask permission to cross a 100-kilometer radius around the game every single time they cross. And we're talking about thousands of occasions. And each one has to be individually certified, and the planes have all had to register beforehand so they know exactly who owns the aircraft and what it's doing. So any strange aircraft will be stopped. Something else, too, which the world can look forward to is that the massive television coverage there's going to be. Each stadium has got something like 32 cameras per game operated through a giant television coverage center that has been specifically put aside for the soccer only. So it'll run 24 hours a day descending TV all over the world. It'll be the largest international television traffic that's ever been sent out of South Africa as the coverage of the soccer. That was Kelvin Kem in Pretoria, South Africa, talking to Mirosent Dillingham. Now, as well as blanket football coverage, it's been very hard to miss news about the oil leak in the Gulf of Mexico. Estimates vary widely, but it's thought that millions of gallons of oil have leaked into the ocean. But what impact will this have on the local environment? Well, Dr Robinson Fulweiler is a researcher at Boston University, where she studies the wetland ecosystems, such as those in Louisiana, that are likely to bear the brunt of the oil damage. Robinson, thank you so much for joining us. First of all, what are the environments that you're looking at, and... What do they normally look like? Sure. So um, we're particularly interested in the wetland environments. So these are sort of the grassy, vegetated areas, and they have um, lots of different types of vegetation, both um, wetland grasses but mangroves as well. So they're very dynamic systems. Um, And normally, um, you know, we expect them this time of year to be growing a lot. There's lots of new shoots, so lots of bright green coming out. And then, um, of course, these environments are filled with lots of different animals. So a variety of birds and fish and um, snails, all different things. So quite a biodiverse area, actually. Absolutely. How do you go in there and assess an ecological impact of an event like an oil spin? You know, it's, that's a really good question, and I think it's going to be um, a challenging one to, one to answer. So the first is that um, Louisiana's ecosystem, wetland ecosystems, have really been studied for a long period of time. So we've got a lot of kind of um, historical data, you know, before the oil spill. Um, and now we're all about going in and trying to find areas that have been impacted um, and starting to measure certain things to see, you know, how has it changed from after the oil spill. So we collect samples and then bring them back to the lab for analysis. And what sort of damage have we actually seen so far? You know, it's it's tough to say. So in some cases, it's really obvious. You know, when you um, pull the boat up on shore, you can see that the wetland grasses, their shoots are covered in the oil. Just to give you an idea of what that oil is like, um, it's kind of like when you make a sundae, it's got that, that caramel, um, melted caramel and hot chocolate. It's got that kind of texture to it, so it's really thick and gooey and sticky. You're making it sound very appealing, whereas I'd imagine it's oil not delicious. isn't so nice. You don't want to eat it. <laughs> But it's just that's the only way I can describe how sticky it is. So it's covering a lot of the shoots of the of the grasses. You can see it on some of the animals themselves. Of course, you've seen those pictures of many of the birds and stuff. But when you go into the wetland, you can see it um, even on crabs um, and snails and all over the plants. We even saw some dolphins that had it on their fin and that kind of thing. So we can, at this point, we know that it's definitely coating the organisms. And it's also coating the sediment layer. And I'm very interested in some of the organisms that you can't see, the microbial community. And, and we know now that that oil is simply making sort of a, a lid over all of the sediment and, and the grasses. And, and that's what we're trying to figure out how that will impact 
natural system. So what do we think can be done to remedy the damage that we've seen? Um, yeah, that's another really tough question. So um, there's actually been this great um, YouTube video that Irv Mendelson made, and he's from Louisiana State University, so people could Google it. But he sits down and goes over all of the different ways we could try to remedy the situation. And, and there's probably three most common ways. One is you can, and you've probably seen this on the news too, you can burn the oil off, and they've been doing this in the open water. Um, you could do that on a wetland too, as long as there was a layer of water. So you'd burn the growing vegetation now, but you'd also get the oil off the land. And if the oil hasn't seeped into the sediment, the roots should be able to regenerate and, and grow again. Um, so you could do that. Another thing is to um, add nutrients. And if you could add things like nitrogen and phosphorus, you can stimulate the biological activity of the wetland and, and help um, the microbial community break down the oil. Um, and then probably the, the third way um, is just to, to sort of let it take its course. And um, over time, the thought is that over time, the oil would start to degrade um, and, and go away. Okay, so none of them are an immediate fix, of course. But why are these environments so important to us? We've discussed the fact that there's a great deal of biodiversity, but wetlands are also very important for the local people living there. But also on a countrywide scale, wetlands are vitally important. Sure. I mean, this is really a major um, cultural and natural and, I, and I, an economical piece of land here for the United States and I think really for the world as a whole. The wetlands are important for a lot of um, fish species that we like to eat, right? So the commercial species that are good. And then, of course, they're important for for birds and lots of nursery habitats, but they're also important for things that we tend not to think too much about, um, like the filtering of nutrients. Um, so they can act as a, a filter to remove things like nitrogen and phosphorus that humans put into the environment. Um, and so that's kind of an ecosystem service that is, um, maybe goes overlooked and is really important. And, and, and we imagine that the, putting the oil on, on these wetlands will change how they filter nutrients. So it could have slightly longer term and more economic impacts than we actually thought. Robinson, thank you ever so much for joining us. That was Dr. Robinson Fulweiler from Boston University. She's been down to Louisiana to assess the ecological impact of the Gulf of Mexico oil spill. If you'd like to hear any more about any of her news stories or read about them, you can find them online at thenakedscientists.com slash news. The Naked Scientists News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.